0: I will say to them, say yes to everything. There's obviously caveats and everything in that. <laughs> but I, what I would say is if it's in a professional capacity, you know, really give any opportunity some significant serious consideration, not being selfish to your, you know, your fellow family or your peers, but more about if an opportunity is the right thing to do, try and say yes to it. Because saying no is quite restrictive. Saying no may suggest to others that you're not prepared to try. And saying no just doesn't take you anywhere. <laughs> the oil and gas industry the driving engine of the world economy delivering prosperity innovation and abundance across the globe here are the stories of its key players directly from the leaders themselves this is oil and gas industry leaders podcast where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome
1: back to another episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is a global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy, oil, and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities both upstream and downstream without compromising safety by delivering... Strategies that optimize operations for reduced costs and risks. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to ask everyone to support the show like I do every week and you still haven't been leaving me reviews. Go to iTunes, tell me what you think about the show. It helps other people find the show and then it also gives me feedback on how I'm doing. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 10-second survey, and Audrey will get those shipped out to you. All right, let's introduce this week's guest. I'm here with Andy Aston, Managing Director of Natural Resources, Global Head of Client Solutions at Turner & Townsend. Hey, Andy, thanks for finally coming on.
0: Thanks, Paige, and sorry it's taken me so long to get here, but I am delighted to be here today.
1: Well, the oil field doesn't sleep, so... <laughs> I understand, and life also
0: happens. Absolutely.
1: Andy, let's talk about how you got started in the industry.
0: Sure, yeah. Strange, I suppose, I'm not your traditional geologist or sort of an engineer that decided oil and gas was something that I absolutely wanted to get into. I started my career in the UK and actually was more in infrastructure and airports and sort of overall big, large developments that took me into the industry. Why? because my wife decided we were moving to Australia. (laughs) Truth be told, my wife's Australian, and we decided we'd start a family there. So back in 2006, I put some feelers out into the marketplace, and lo and behold, at a company called Woodside Energy, who I'm sure the audience has heard of, who recently acquired BHP's oil and gas assets last year, they offered me a job, but it was for a very specific reason, and that was to take the learning from the UK construction market, which I've been working in for a decade, into the oil industry. And they were specifically interested in the experiences that I'd had working on what was at the time Europe's largest construction project, which was Heathrow Terminal 5, which you may have had the joy of coming through at some point in your uh, journeying. We did things differently on that project. We changed the way in which people contracted. We introduced a partnership model across various suppliers We put in very long-term contracts, and we tried to bring a level, I suppose you would say, of innovation into the project community. It was a seven-year project and a multi-billion-dollar job, and we did some really innovative things and innovative thinking, and Woodside had heard about this. And so when I interviewed with them, they were really keen to see what they could take into the oil industry. Um, So I packed my bags and headed off to Australia.
1: Wow, that's quite the trip.
0: Yeah, it was good. I mean, it gave me the opportunity to, I suppose, it was the time when Australia decided it was going to be one of the powerhouses of liquid natural gas. And specifically, sort of, you know, that mid-zeros, Australia was targeting to be one of the world's largest exporters. So my first job with Woodside was to work on their Pluto project, which is still in operation today. Yeah, after a few years of that. I joined Chevron, which were delivering the Gorgon project, which I believe is still the most expensive man-made project on the planet, I think coming in at about 72 billion US dollars. So I did that for four years and it sort of gave me a real insight into the world of, I guess, gas offshore, both and onshore and sort of, you know, the complexities of the marketplace that gas was feeding into and really the changing environment at that time.
1: Very good. Very good. I mean, that's a lot to take in. So after the Gorgon project,
0: what you do? Yeah. So um, after Gorgon, hands up, I didn't complete that project. I think if you were there, you'd have been there for your entire career, but I did four or five years on that project and decided with a young family, I'd really like to explore the world a little further within the industry. So that was either working with Chevron and taking an opportunity with them or to move more into the consultancy world. So I picked the second and I was offered an opportunity to run Turner & Townsend's Asia business. So I moved the family to Singapore. And I used to spend my time between India, Korea, Japan, and then a little bit of Singapore thrown in there. And I ended up actually, after all my incarnations, working for Chevron again on their Changdong Bay project, which was based in the Sichuan province of China. And that was a sour gas project. That was the first sort of I guess, route for Chevron into that marketplace where they're in a joint venture. And I spent sort of three years commuting from Singapore into country and supporting them delivering that program. I had a large team of Chinese nationals working with me on that, and it was a very successful program. And what I won't forget, so I tended to move around different projects in different locations, whether that be Impex in Japan or the Korean National Oil Company, or indeed the Indian National Oil Company, whatever programs or projects were taking place where we could help I would tend to be there. So lots of travel, lots of fascinating cultures and interesting people to meet. And I did that for three years before I was asked to move to Houston, where I took on our America's role. And that was everything from what I call Alaska down to Chile, now anywhere in between. And that was supporting mining and metals business, as well as our oil and gas business. And what started to become more of an energy transition business before I left back to London in 2018. So travel the world, I think oil and gas and energy gives you that opportunity, but certainly found it fascinating to meet with the similar clients around the world and the different cultures and the different organizations that the industry leads you into.
1: Yeah, no kidding. What place was your favorite that you lived in?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I really like Singapore. I think people refer to it as Asia light page because it, <laughs> it's still got a really good flavor for the elements that are perhaps different within the region, but at the same time, there's some of the comforts of home that perhaps you don't get in some of the other locations I do have to say that the Chevron project in the middle of the Sichuan province, which used to take 27 hours for me to get to site from Singapore, was probably my favorite because it really showed you the power of what a big gas in this sense development could be. The power of educating local people, the power of developing local companies, the power of giving opportunities to people who wouldn't have that which many I'm still in contact today, and we're talking over a decade ago, and many who have now you know, taken opportunities around the world to progress their careers. So I think some of those rural locations, some of those opportunities for people to embrace and then progress is something that I really enjoyed about those locations and sort of the opportunities that I took forward.
1: Wow, that's exciting. How did your family adapt?
0: I think because Singapore was, I wouldn't say an easy place to live, but it really does have a brilliant expatriate community. So I think within the compound living type environment that we were in, we grew a lot of friends and developed a lot of networks there. So although I was away often, my wife and my kids, you know, were able to go to the Canadian international school. They are not Canadian. and so, <laughs> Just putting it out there. And my wife, I just developed a network. So we were really sad to leave after three and a half years and we loved it there. But the opportunity to move to Houston sort of really, I think, where I think everybody, if they're in this industry, needs to spend some time, in my view, to really understand how many of the organizations think and work and drive our industry forward. So I grabbed it and, you know, we did three and a half, four years there and I don't regret a minute of it.
1: Good, good. So let's talk about your current role.
0: Yeah. So for the last six years, I've been global head of natural resources. And really that was focused on leading about a thousand people around the world, focusing on mining, clean energy and oil and gas and chemicals. So we kind of split them into the three sectors in the business that I'm in. So right now, I'm specifically focused on leading our oil and gas sector and the global key clients that we support within it. So that's really three things. We help clients set up, we call it setting up projects for success, but that's really making sure they've got what they need to deliver a project, whether that be the people, you know the resources, the governance, the investments or everything else at the front end. I then get involved with clients to actually execute that work. So that's sitting on the client side of the table, making sure that what's been committed to actually happens. And then at the end of that program project, hopefully not cleaning up too much, but being able to make sure those assets get into operation and are producing as they were meant to produce. So really, my role is client-facing. It's really to try and come up with, I wouldn't just say innovative solutions, but solutions that are right for the client, depending on their location and development. So it it could be an opportunity in Ghana, it could be an opportunity in China, or it could be opportunity in the Gulf of Mexico. It depends who the client is, what it looks like, what their demands are, what their capabilities are, and what they're looking to achieve. And then we try and modify our programmatic approach to helping them to actually deliver that. So I love that part of it, Paige. I think engaging with clients is my favorite part of the job, listening to them, making sure that we actually try and articulate what it is they want and play it back to them so we're getting it right. And really, I guess, trying to help the industry progress, which is you know where I find the interest.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess it's helped that you've lived so many different places, right?
0: <laughs> it really helps. Yeah. And I think you can bring that cultural diversity and thought so some of these solutions are not wedded to one approach not wedded to one angle or way to do things i think you see so many different facets of how things can be done around the world and and trying to bring them together into a location to make it work for others is you're exactly right it really does benefit i think benefit everybody in my family actually the whole international international living and the way that you can you know translate that into everything you do so yeah it's been fascinating but the role's fun the role's global and, you know, I'm just interacting with our teams, interacting with people and making sure I can transfer that learning, as you said, between regions to make sure it's consistent and we can actually, you know, I guess, support the industry in its progression.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Well, let's get into leadership, Andy. What is leadership
0: to you? It's a question that made me stop and think, actually. I think it's, for me, it's a set of behaviors that demonstrate to others that when you represent and how you act towards them, you give them a level of belief and the direction that you're taking them on. So I'll give you some examples, you know, so being demonstrably supportive to others to allow them to prosper and grow. is One I've written down here, being clear on how performance is and will be measured so that people understand what success actually looks like. I think it's really important as a leader to be able to give people a direction to travel and know when they're being successful and reward them for that. I think engaging with and seeking different opinions to derive an outcome. You mentioned it earlier, I think making sure you get all opinions on the table from wherever people are from or their their backgrounds or education, absolutely essential to making a decision, but not being frightened to make a decision that doesn't meet everybody's requirements. I think a good leader does know when to stop taking opinion and make a decision to move on. But they've also got to solve problems effectively. So for me, it's really a set of behaviours, whether that be empathy or, you know, showing a level of vulnerability or even gratitude towards people. I think it's making sure that people can see that side of you, but bringing people on the journey with you. And I think if you can demonstrably show people through your behavior, a direction to travel, the way to interact and the way to deliver against what you're trying to achieve, then I think that for me is what leadership's all about. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actual intelligence in a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Inevoris is the energy-specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Inevoris has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Inevoris.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S dot
1: Do you have an example of maybe a difficult experience you've had as a leader?
0: Yeah, I always think that the hardest thing is actually to break through people's paradigms. I think people often will, I suppose, they have a certain self-belief in themselves and what they're strong at and perhaps the areas they can improve upon. And I think one of the challenges of being a good leader is being able to help people understand perhaps where they aren't as strong or where they aren't, where they think they are and being able to demonstrate and, you know, show them where they can fit within your organisation or your team. But actually, they're still adding value, but perhaps not in the way they went. So I think what I'm really saying is it's having the difficult conversations with people in the team that really think they're already there and being able to articulate them and bring them to a position where they recognise that actually there is more that they could do. There is a difference in how they can approach things. And actually, they're not quite ready for whatever they think they are. So I think rather than give you a specific example. I think for me, it's more of my constant challenge in leading people is making sure people understand their strengths and weaknesses, how they can build on them, and then how they can apply them into a space and actually listen, rather than just assume that they're already there. And I do think, you know, certainly, as I've grown up in my career, trying to put that across to people can be really challenging, especially with different cultures. We've mentioned it a few times now, different cultures act in different ways. Mm -hmm. Certain cultures where I've worked, they'll say yes to everything, which I'll come on to later. And it's not always the my answer. (laughs) I wish it was, but it's not. And also recognizing if you just apply your sole understanding, perhaps where you were brought up or where you're from, that actually isn't going to meet the requirements of the people in the room. So I think the difficult experience is really when you don't look at the room, you don't understand the people within it, you create that experience and you create that challenge for yourself rather than just listening and watching and learning from that environment.
1: Well, do you also think it has something to do with how people take criticism? They may not realize, okay, you're really trying to help them, but they take it offensively.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. And I think people hear what they want to hear sometimes, Paige, and don't always listen. And if your view is different to theirs, or perhaps they've got stuck in a certain paradigm where they're not prepared to shift, then yeah, anything you say can often come across as criticism. So I think for me it's about giving the individual confidence in the person that's talking to them, perhaps even yeah, illustrating through, you know, a point or an example or other things that actually you do know what they're going through, the experiences they're trying to address and actually perhaps what you're saying does mean something. I think it's where people don't see value in your own opinion that they sometimes struggle to change. I think that's probably the biggest issue I have is making sure that people can understand that there is more than one point of view. And actually, if they can do that, they'll often start to, I suppose, have a better experience and become a better leader.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's our entire world right now, you know, but I'm not going to get into that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely true. Yeah.
1: So what's the most rewarding thing
0: about being in leadership? Three things for me, Pedro. I think witnessing growth in others is probably something, but I break that into and how they then progress either within an organization that you're in. So I've been in this organization for 11 years now. It's brilliant when you're working with a team and hopefully leading that team in the right direction that you see people progress and take their own direction, whether that's within your own organization or indeed taking a different path outside of it. But just see that growth in a person is the best thing uh, for me. I think secondly, seeing how people listen and adapt and take on what has been shared with them to make it even better is brilliant as well because we can all do things, but actually if somebody's got a better idea, can take in a different direction and make it even better either for your team or the client or the organization you're working for, that's brilliant because that demonstrably shows as a leader, you've taken them on that journey and they're taking it beyond perhaps where you could have taken it and acknowledging that and giving good feedback on that. And then just being able to create an environment where everybody can prosper. Things for me. If you can do that, and again, you'll see that through people's behavior, their interaction, the way that they work together, and you can see that positive change and direction is for me, that's the most rewarding thing is seeing the benefit of others. It's not, I think, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror is one thing, but actually, you know, making sure that the people that you're leading are progressing and, and progressing and moving forward is something that is much more rewarding than dealing with yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be?
0: Yeah, we take on about three or four hundred graduates every year as Turner and Townsend. I think during COVID, slightly less. I think our record's about five hundred and fifty. So, this is a question that often, you know, after you've done your presentation and you're chatting to your graduates as they come through, they'll ask you this. I have a stock answer, but for it's a real answer. So I always say to them, say yes to every opportunity, but know when to call time. What I mean by that is you will only learn if the decision was right or wrong for you. But I don't actually think there is a right or wrong. As I explain to them, the experience that it will give you will either take you on a certain direction of travel towards more of the same or... It's going to enable you to pick a different path, knowing that you won't necessarily want to repeat that experience, but you've had the opportunity to learn from it and make a decision to take yourself in a different direction. So I will say to them, say yes to everything. There's obviously caveats and everything in that. <laughs> but I, what I would say is if it's in a professional capacity, you know, really give any opportunity to see some significant, serious consideration, not being selfish to your, you know, your fellow family or your peers, but more about if an opportunity is the right thing to do, try and say yes to it. Because saying no is quite restrictive. Saying no may suggest to others that you're not prepared to try. And saying no just doesn't take you anywhere. But as I said, do call time. Sometimes you said yes, it's been brilliant, but now it's not right for you. So I think keeping an eye on that, saying yes, but knowing when to stop is absolutely critical. So yeah, And I guess I'd like to think I've done that throughout my career page, which is Say yes to everything and try and manage within it, and then go from there.
1: Say yes, and you can live all over the world.
0: You can. <laughs> you really can, yeah.
1: Okay, so do you have a book that's influenced you?
0: I haven't got one book. I do read quite a bit, but I think it won't be any surprise to you. I probably read more travel books than I do anything else. And that could be historical travel books, that could be, you know, right up to date books that A Lonely Planet from last week from Germany I was reading. But I guess for me, it's the element of travel that I've enjoyed so much in the last 20 years, tying that back to history and then tying that back to, let's just say, an event that took place in that country or a decade ago or indeed 100 years ago that allows me to sort of learn more about the place that I'm going to, learn more about the people, their culture, how they work and why I might be there. The history of the place and the, and the sense of the place through literature. So it's not one thing, but certainly more of a genre about that sort of literature that sort of looks at the past, looks at the culture of a place, and then ties it back to the present day.
1: So if you could guess, how many travel books have you
0: read? Oh, I would say in excess of 50, which I don't know if that's good or bad, Page actually. but <laughs>
1: No, I'm just interested because I'm like, if you're absorbing all this information about all these different cultures and history and all that stuff, I just wanted to know if there was
0: a number. No, I don't have an objective in terms of that, I think. But I know it's a good question because but some are thick, some are thin. I think those that are more literature based around you know, a location or a historical event in that location I got to take longer to get. Right, to. Uh, <laughs> But you know, yeah, sometimes you just sum it thumbing through stuff, but no, I think just having something to make you recognize that you're not in the same domain and, and that there is something else to think about in the location that you're in is critical to me. And often that comes through a book.
1: Uh, well, I'm sure the American version was really small.
0: It's <laughs> very unfair. I mean, I found it fascinating to go to all the different states, you know, whether it be up in Alaska or whether it be into Louisiana or indeed into North Dakota. The differences, with the similarities were stark. And again, trying to understand the culture of each of the states that are related to the industry that we're in, I do find really interesting, you know, and you well, can Well, that's ask... a
1: good point. That's a good point. Yeah. There are different cultures with that. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What's your most used business
0: tool? I'm kind of give you a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a Britishism here, a bit of a twee answer, but I'd say two things and I'll give you a reason for that. So the obvious one for me is so I'm still a pen and paper guy. So I've got a blue notebook and a blue pen. And it's an A5 size and I carry it everywhere. And for me, being able to capture what people are saying and listen and be able to refer back to those notes to make sure I understand what my clients are looking for. I understand what perhaps my team has said or some of the challenges we've got essential. So I carry that everywhere. But the other thing, moreover, is probably what I call the private appointment tool. And that's just creating private time in my diary to distill and sort of develop solutions it's absolutely critical, and something I've passed on to most of my team is to give yourself some headspace. Certainly, when I travelled a lot, that space in the air before they introduced Wi-Fi onto the plane it was brilliant because you had your own private time where nobody would bother you. It was critical wow. time solution you know not being slave to the email or the constant meetings that we're in every day all of the time and i'm not saying that they don't have a place they do but you also need to create your own time and just working without thinking is not a good place to be i guess my really great business tool right now is being able to put a private entry in my diary and give myself some headspace and thinking time yeah it's called
1: self-care
0: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's so necessary. It's wild how many people don't understand how important that is because of how fast paced the world is now. Not only that, I also carry a notebook with me. I feel like a detective.
0: <laughs> I've really tried to, um, turning 50 next year, and I've really tried to adopt new technologies, new advances, and I, I have managed to do that in many occasions, but I cannot deny that just pulling out my notebook and making jotting down something seems to be my go-to position. I shouldn't be embarrassed by it, but I should at least recognize that's (laughs) what I do.
1: Well, I find that you remember what you write down. Correct. Better than typing it on your phone. I guess it's from school, from going to school, you wrote down everything.
0: 100%. And my memory is getting but worse. But
1: we're old, so. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I've tried to use voice memos. You know, I've tried to do shared notes on my iPhone or whatever it might be. And they all have a place, but I can't seem to replace uh, the blue book. So we will see.
1: <laughs> so who would you say is your most respected competitor?
0: I think I said before, we kind of work in uh, project and program setup and then execution and delivery on behalf of the sort of oil and gas and sort of mining and clean energy environments. So actually, my most respected competitor is actually my client. Much of what we do, in many cases, has been or can be done by our clients by them enhancing their own capabilities. So I suppose I do respect that, Going back to your question. And, you know, for me, it's working with them to recognize in certain jurisdictions, in certain countries, in certain locations around certain services, what may they be better placed to do than ourselves and what do i think we can do better in those locations so i think number one it really is our clients and how they grow and develop themselves and where we would fit into that but to give you i guess the more classical answer we do compete with the epc the EPCMs of the marketplace the flers the vectales and others to support clients as they deliver programs around the world we compete quite a bit with that sort of large organization And then finally, certainly in some of this more strategic work we do, the typical McKinsey's or Bain's or or some of the big four, the KPMG's and the lights and the PWC's we touch upon on a regular basis. So it really depends on the service model. But honestly, going back to the beginning, I'd say my clients are my biggest challenge around that because often they'll want to do some of the stuff that we do themselves. And then they realize that actually maybe we might be better placed for that. So it's making sure that we're able to articulate our value and maybe why we should be doing it instead of them.
1: Well, that leads me to my next question is what makes you better than them?
0: I think we actually listen and try and provide a bespoke solution rather than reeling out, let's say, the standard product for everyone. So I come back to the role I'm playing now. My role really is to listen and to make sure that not one size fits all, it often doesn't, and to make sure that we adapt. We're quite a practical organisation, so most of the people that work within my team and within our organisation actually has physically delivered major capital projects, they've lived in some challenging locations like myself, they've been on the tools, Mm -hmm. and they understand how a programme or a project in the oil industry goes together. They may or may not be engineers, they may or may not you know have worked within the supply chain, with the engineering environment, but what they do have is a real practical application to bring something to the table that's going to work, and I think that's perhaps where we bring the difference for ourselves. where I think we're better is we actually are able to do the consultancy side, but actually have a context for bringing that knowledge to the table rather than, let's say, the textbook approach.
1: Very good. So Andy, of all the places you've lived and throughout your entire career, What is your most important lesson learned?
0: So, I think I'll answer that in, in two ways. The first would be with all the international work that I've done, ensuring that you get to the place at the right time in the right way is probably the most important thing. I have been known to be hours, days late for appointments because some of these places have been very challenging to get to and I didn't necessarily get that right. On a more serious note, I think the most important thing for me is that you can't be a hero and you shouldn't try and be a hero actually the most effective way of supporting your clients of supporting the industry is to make sure that you're bringing the team with you as a leader that everybody feels like they have a role to play and that actually the team is the solution and I think if you try and soldier on for want of a better word and do everything yourself you're not getting the best out of the people that you have you're not getting the best out of the opportunity and you're certainly not learning from it. So I think the most important thing is embrace what you have, embrace the people that you have around you, their knowledge, their understanding, and galvanize that together to come up with an answer that works for people. So I guess you could summarize as listen, listen with a purpose, and make sure you're combining all those thoughts together into one.
1: Yeah, don't fall for that white knight syndrome. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's a doozy.
1: So how could your role now be important to the future of the industry?
0: It's interesting, actually. A lot of my clients three or four years ago were starting to talk about the energy transition, but hadn't necessarily, let's say, adapted or indeed made conscious decisions around the way in which they would either develop or set up new projects around the world. And I think my role now is to make sure that I'm bringing to my clients and the industry some of the changes that we're seeing, again, from region to region, whether that be bringing more carbon capture technology into the US marketplace where well, we're seeing that being quite pervasive in the UK, whether that be supporting educating supply chains involved in the energy transition and how they can change some of their choices and the way they construct or operate or manage things. It's really, for me, about ensuring that we are a critical part of the energy transition. We're still very much part of the industry, and I think in many cases leading the way in terms of reducing emissions and taking to net zero. So my role is to make sure that not only... Do we do what we've always done, but also recognise that we have to change? And there are various things within that as part of that emissions, one, emissions, two, and different scopes within that, that we as industry can adjust to. And we're doing a really good job, in my view, of doing that now, but it's Mm -hmm. making sure we stick at that. It's making sure we continue to educate people and show people that actually it's not that difficult for us to make small tweaks, whether that be renewable power going out to power our rigs offshore, or whether it be... Just adjusting the amount of flaring we do or the way that we capture emissions, just making some slight adjustments to the way that we approach our projects and the way we execute them and deliver them you can make sure we're very much part of the journey rather than, I think in some people's eyes, an enemy of the journey. And I don't see it like that. I see that we absolutely have a role to play. And I actually think, as I said, we're leading the way in many cases. So my role is to make sure that we have a future in the industry, that we are part of it and that we're making it successful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of education, what are your thoughts about telling someone about this industry that doesn't quite understand it?
0: Again, this comes back to my four or 500 graduates a year page where they always ask me the same question, why do you work in this industry? And I always explain to them, look, for me, we're part of a holistic value chain that, you know, our industry in energy and oil and gas, is just one component in a circle of the economy and we're an input into it you know and there are various steps along that chain so when i explained to them you know the energy industry produces i guess we are an input into power to driving clean energy we're in we're advocating for jobs for education for learning we invest into communities whether it be schools or educational colleges there's a whole facet about what we do that helps others helps educate others, helps develop others, but it was also just one of the components of many parts of the industry. When you point out to people they're using plastics or they're involved in certain activities, a lot of what they're using comes from our industry. I've seen quite a few funny adverts actually in the US, I can't remember which one it was last year, but the uh, some of the midstream players were putting adverts out about, you know, I suppose what would happen if we didn't have certain products in the marketplace and we couldn't use certain products. I'm a big believer in demonstrably showing to people without the industry that we're in, you wouldn't have the following or you wouldn't be able to do certain things. And I think we just got to recognize we're part of the circular economy. We're not just a part of an industry that people can look down upon. We're actually just part of something that actually is quite progressive and helps.
1: All right. So Andy, do you have a favorite podcast?
0: Mm, It's a good question. Other than yours, I would say (laughs) that obviously (laughs) uh, I have to say that no is the answer. I flip between all sorts. I'm a UK-based person that listens to too much of the BBC. <laughs> they do tend to put some really interesting stuff on, so I, I tend to go for the comedic podcasts, whether Same. it be lifestyle or choices. Or so it's often the you know sort of UK-based comedians. But there are so many of them. Page though, I wouldn't say there's one favourite, but that genre, that kind of twenty minutes, thirty minutes, makes me laugh gives me something to think about whilst at the same time enables me just to crack on with other things is the way I like to embrace podcasts So help educate me help give me a bit of a I guess thought for the day for want of a better word but also made me laugh because I think I think for me podcasts are as much about having a chuckle as they are just you know learning something new I listen to a lot of comedy too so
1: you're in good company
0: Good. No, no, no. I I can recommend it. So yeah, it's fun. But man, there's so many out there. We are competing in a big space doing this, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we are. We are. But luckily, you're on one of the larger oil and gas podcasts.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, I I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and and the thanks for the invite.
1: Oh, absolutely. So Andy, if people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Turner and Townsend, how can they go about doing that?
0: Yeah. So just send me a direct email, guys. So it's just andy.aston. That's A-S-T-O-N at turntown.com, and I'd be delighted to hear from you.
1: Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door.
0: Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.